service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Will Smith are insane. He was arrested and put in jail after a brawl at a popular radio station left one man nearly blind. He was harassed by a disgruntled music executive who idled in his car outside the Smith family home with a handgun on the dashboard. He blew through $10,000 a day on booze and women when he was supposed to be spending that money on making a record. And yes, we all know about the shocking slap heard around the world that he planted on Chris Rock on live TV during the 2022 Academy Awards ceremony. Despite that slap, Will Smith still accepted the Oscar for Best Actor later that night. Because Will Smith makes great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of John Olufsen performing Boom Fa La 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 in 1938. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from William Shatner's Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And why would I play you that specific slice of marshmallow cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on June 7, 1989. And that was the day that Will Smith was arrested and charged with assault. On this episode, a radio station brawl, the slap heard around the world, marshmallow cheese, and Will Smith. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 7, Hollywoodland. March 27, 2022, the Dolby Theater, 
Los Angeles. Will Smith was ready. Ready for the applause, ready for the recognition. He was ready to feel the overwhelming sense of pride and the respect that came with being an Academy Award-winning actor. Four months had passed since the release of King Richard, the biopic that starred Will Smith as Richard Williams, father to tennis icons Venus and Serena. The buzz around Will's portrayal of the Williams patriarch was indeed Oscar-worthy. The real Venus and Serena weren't just advocates, they were damn near evangelists. Richard himself wasn't present during the film's promotional rollout, but he gave his blessing. The stars had aligned. Here tonight, after decades of hip-hop records and blockbuster action flicks and everything else in between, Will Smith was going to finally take home that coveted golden statuette. But first, he had to go through this. He had to sit in the audience at the 94th Academy Awards ceremony and endure the Chris everybody hates. At least the Chris that Will hated at this moment. Chris Rock was presenting the award for best documentary feature film. Everyone in the room knew that the award belonged to Summer of Soul, Questlove's beloved look back at the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, but for Will, this moment had nothing to do with a movie or an award. This moment, was about whatever was about to come out of Chris Rock's mouth. Chris had a history of throwing shade at Will's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. And history loves to repeat. Will braced himself for another of Chris's biting remarks. Those one-liners he called jokes. Will didn't have to wait long, because apparently Chris Rock couldn't wait to knock Jada Pinkett Smith down a peg with a reference to her bald head. And the room erupted with laughter. Suddenly, each drink that Will knocked back that night knocked back at him. His wife's very public struggle with alopecia was now a cheap Hollywood punchline? Nah, he wasn't about to be disrespected like that. Not on a night like tonight. Will let out his own laugh, loud enough for everyone to hear, but it wasn't genuine. It was a decoy for what he was about to do next. A mindless decision, a life-changing decision. It wasn't the first time that Will's anger got the best of him. But it was the first time the fans would see it on the world stage. The ones who first knew him as their beloved Fresh Prince, just a scrappy kid from Philly who didn't even have a rep yet when he delivered a generation-defining rap on how parents just don't understand. But maybe the fans were the ones who didn't understand. Will Smith wasn't that 19-year-old kid anymore. His fucking 50s were here. His dark side had reawakened, and he was ready to show people what time it really was. The first time Will Smith won a major award was over 30 years earlier, back in 1989. He did it not as Will Smith the actor, but as his alter ego, the Fresh Prince, alongside his musical partner, Jeffrey Allen Towns, AKA DJ Jazzy Jeff. And the hip hop duo didn't just win the Grammy for best rap performance, they won the first ever Grammy for best rap performance. The Grammy Awards had never recognized hip hop as a musical category worth celebration until now. Not that fans watching at home would know. The Grammys refused to actually televise the presentation of that award. And that was some bullshit. Nobody could watch Will and Jeff accept this historic award. Fuck that noise. Will boycotted the show. But that was all four months ago, in February. Now, it was June. And Will Smith was no longer experiencing conflicted feelings about an award that doubled as a backhanded compliment. He wasn't holding that award. He was holding nothing. He was alone. 
in the six by eight foot jail cell. Well, mostly alone. There were other inmates invading his personal space with their body odor and their halitosis, begging for autographs even though they had no pen or paper. He may have thought he wanted the attention before, but now he didn't. He didn't want empathy either. He just wanted a way out. He hadn't done anything wrong, technically, but he was in the room where it happened. He could still see that poor bastard on the ground, his head gushing blood. That guy wasn't dead now. Surely he was in the hospital wishing he was dead, or more likely wishing Will and his crew were dead and plotting ways in which he could make that a reality. It all happened in one split second. Chaos, fear, madness. Not that those things were anything new. The world began in madness, and in madness it continued. The madness was always there, all the way back, back to one of the most unnerving memories lodged deep inside Will Smith's cranium. Back to his family's Winfield home in West Philadelphia. Mom-mom cowering in the hallway, daddy-o hunched over her. Will was so eager to please mom-mom, make her smile, make her laugh. Mom-mom was the light of Will's world, but now daddy-o was making her scream as he hit her with his fists. Her radiance dimmed. But what even was life if Will couldn't protect his own mother? He asked himself that question then, when he was just nine years old, and he didn't have an answer. But he was sure of one thing, he'd never become his father. That meant never raising his hands to a woman. That meant shedding his young, tormented self, the kid who easily spooked, the kid who left the safe Catholic school for Overbrook High School in the hilltop section of West Philly. The schools were just a mile away from each other, but they were worlds apart. Will needed an assist to adapt to life at Overbrook. His 18-year-old cousin, Paul, visiting from Jersey for the summer, gave him a crash course in street smarts. Paul was buff, mysterious, a first-degree black belt in kung fu, and he was a hip-hop head. Will barely knew what hip-hop was, but he knew that Paul was cool as fuck and he wanted to know more. Paul's treasure chest of boom-bap mixtapes sent Will into overdrive. Melly Mel and the Furious Five, Grandmaster Flash, Cool Mo D. And then there was Will's favorite, the artist that would single-handedly unleash Will's inner MC, Grandmaster Kaz of the Cold Crush Brothers. This was the 1980s, when every New York City rapper sounded like they could be a wizard. And that wasn't a stretch. They all protected their boroughs like kingdoms, slaying competitors with street corner freestyle battles. Will could already talk incessantly, but give him a rhyme book and a beat, he was confident that his skill would go unrivaled on the streets of West Philly. First, however, he just had to survive the halls of Overbrook High. Will rounded the stairwell at school just as a fist came around the corner and the sucker punch landed hard on the side of his head. Will barely got a look at the other kid, but he did get a look at what hit him. Not just a clenched fist. Will Smith was knocked out cold by a fist holding a dial combination padlock. And when Will came to, he tasted fresh blood in his mouth. His swollen top lip was pulsing. He had the worst headache of his life. And that was some brass knuckle shit. Sent him head first down the stairs. And why? Because that's what happens when you joke to the one kid in school who doesn't give a fuck about your confident rap battling persona that perhaps if he doesn't like you, well, maybe his girlfriend will. They say what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. And Will Smith walked away from that high school altercation vowing never to be blindsided again. And to never be blindsided, you needed protection. You needed a built-in defense mechanism. You needed a crew, a clique. Guys who will stand by your side when the shit really goes down.
Sleep was out of the question. The other inmates made sure of that. They wouldn't leave him alone. It was going to be a long night. Hopefully one night would be the extent of it. Hopefully he'd get out of this shithole in the morning. How would he manage that? A Grammy Award for Best Rap Performance meant fuck all when you were sitting in a West Philly jail cell. A little statue wasn't going to make charges of aggravated assault, criminal conspiracy, and reckless endangerment simply go away. Think. He had to think. He got one phone call, right? He had to make it count. And he did. Will Smith called the one person he knew who could get him out of jail. He called JL. James Lassiter, AKA JL, was a key player in the DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince crew. JL was the duo's manager and surrogate father. He maintained responsibility and ran a tight ship. And these were much needed skills for a group that around 1987 was now opening big shows for Public Enemy and Two Live Crew. They were also signing bad deals. Dana Goodman, a small-time music executive, was more than ready to wring Will and Jeff's local success dry. Goodman had flash. He rocked gold chains that peeked out from behind designer tracksuits. He burned rubber in a steel-blue Audi 4000 CS Quattro 5-speed, but it was all hustle. His record label didn't even have an office. Goodman sold records out of the trunk of his Audi. To young and impressionable Will and Jeff, a deal was a deal and they signed whatever paper Dana Goodman put in front of them. But the deal was bogus. Will was only 17 years old when he signed the contract, and according to Pennsylvania law, a person under the age of 18 couldn't legally sign a contract without a parent or a guardian present, which there wasn't. And the steady hands of guys like JL helped guide Will and Jeff from Goodman, all the way to London-based label Jive Records, which re-released the duo's debut album, Rock the House, the same one Goodman had been selling out of his trunk. Goodman was irate. He blamed Jive Records for the loss of his cash cow. He blamed JL. He blamed whoever stuck their nose into the fucking business. But Dana Goodman lacked the funds and the legal representation to sue anyone. Street justice was his only option. Will Smith saw the car parked out on the street in front of his family's house. He knew who was sitting behind the wheel. Steel blue Audi 4000. He heard the rumor too. The rumor that Dana Goodman wasn't gonna let Will's jump to Jive Records go down without a fight. It was Daddio who sprang into action. He walked confidently to the Audi's passenger side window. He saw the handgun sitting on the dashboard. He knew Goodman wanted revenge. But Daddio called Goodman's bluff because Daddio didn't take kindly to threats. Goodman wanted to kill his son He'd have to get his lazy ass out of the car, walk into the house, and kill the entire fucking family then. Goodman put the Audi in drive and sped off. Not before he swore he'd get his. Some other day, some other place, even if it meant returning with protection. Will Smith, on the other hand, was working on his own protection. Just like a crew needs a manager slash father figure, a crew needs security. Will didn't have the means to book top tier protection, but he had a guy from one of the roughest parts of South Philly a headstrong and ruthless friend named Charles Alston, or as the streets knew him best, Charlie Mack, 6'6", 290. On tour, Charlie may have left the grind behind, but the grind did not leave him. He boarded the tour bus with a trash bag filled with wads of cash. He wasn't leaving Philadelphia without his paper on hand, and Will and the boys didn't leave Philadelphia without accepting Charlie Mack for who he was, the secret weapon in their arsenal. Charlie Mack was Will's right-hand man, Charlie Mack had a sixth sense. 
He knew trouble was about to happen before it happened. If he pulled the crew out of a party before it was over, it was always for a good reason. Thank him later when you hear gunshots popping off as you're pulling away from the club. But there were some things that even a guy like Charlie Mack couldn't protect you from. Like the criticism about Will Smith's lighthearted bars. As the hip-hop landscape became more and more ferocious, the MCs dissing each other from coast to coast, Will's rhymes remained palatable for kids and parents. He didn't cuss. He was an anomaly, which didn't mean he wasn't successful. His second album with DJ Jazzy Jeff, He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper, the one that featured Parents Just Don't Understand, went triple platinum and made it to number four on the Billboard 200. Over the years, both with Jeff and as a solo artist, Will continued to dominate the charts with hits like Summertime, Getting Jiggy With It, Miami, Men in Black, and Just the Two of Us. Despite those wins, Will faced blow after blow after blow in the hip-hop world. Some of his peers and haters didn't consider him a representative of the genre because his shit was so-called corny and whitewashed. To them, Will wasn't the rapper, he was the parody. He was the guy who always resorted to clean humor and punchlines in his verses. And they all thought he was a guy who would forever pull his punches. Looking back on it, his girlfriend's behavior had seemed strange for a while. And from her perspective, Will Smith seemed strange too. She didn't know if beneath the Fresh Prince facade hid the Will she once knew all those years ago, the one she fell in love with. This new Will had commercial success, charisma, charm, but in all the wrong ways. And the fact that he was on the road all the time made it easy to suspect that he was finding a little something on the side. And they drifted apart. She was unfaithful. Will lost it when he found out. He grabbed an iron poker sitting next to the fireplace and started swinging it around. He shattered the glass panels in the wooden atrium of her house. And then he shattered the rules. The no groupie rule, the one that kept women off tour buses and out of hotel rooms, that fell by the wayside. He no longer played it safe. He'd knock out anyone who tried to step to him, just like Charlie Mack taught him. But Charlie would also bail Will out of a jam if things got wild. Even if that meant pulling Will off his ex-girlfriend's new lover at a downtown Philly fashion market. Will had a fuck-it-all attitude in the wake of his breakup. He also had courage in the presence of Charlie Mack. But even though he was becoming a rap phenom globetrotting with his boys, it still wasn't enough. Will Smith wanted to show the public his worth, and he did it with cold, hard cash. He bought a candy apple red Iroc Z Camaro, a custom Chevy Suburban, a turquoise T-top Corvette, his first motorcycle, a decked out blue Suzuki Katana 600, a Seafoam Benz C300. He also bought a lavish mansion, which quickly became a hub for the Junior Black Mafia, a group of Philly drug dealers. And they hung out in the living room, 20 or more of them. Greasy Philly cheesesteak wrappers from Overbrook Pizza scattered around the kitchen floor gambling and pool games running non-stop. But the Grammy award-winning MC had taken his eye off the eight ball. He lacked motivation. Didn't matter that Jive Records wanted a new DJ Jazzy Jeff in the Fresh Prince record, or that they wanted it yesterday. The only way Will and Jeff agreed to make a record was to do it somewhere that could double as a vacation. But their time spent at Compass Point Studios in Nassau, Bahamas was a boondoggle. Their budget was fucked. They blew through 10 grand daily on nightclubs, rum punch, jerk chicken, and women. 300,000 total in unnecessary waste. They returned home to Philly after a month with barely a dime of the budget left and only two weeks to deliver. The duo's third record, and in this corner, staggered to a mediocre number 39 on the Billboard 200. Still, 
Will couldn't help but spend. Round trip tickets for him and Charlie Mack to Los Angeles. Any chance to escape. But there was no outrunning tax evasion. Three million dollars of income due. Uncle Sam got his repayment through Will's motorcycles, his stereo systems, and even that first house. But the biggest hit of all was not being able to shake that feeling. The feeling that he was still seen as a joke. And that feeling gave him another feeling that he had no choice, no choice but to strike out at anyone in his line of fire, including himself. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. It was impossible to know what the future held in store for him. Once, he held the future in his own hands. But now, in June of 1989, the future was out of reach and out of sight. The only thing Will Smith could see or feel in this West Philly jail cell were the walls that were closing in on him. He got JL on the phone with his one phone call. JL told Will that the other guy, the guy who took the beating, the beating that landed Will in this cell in the first place, that guy was fighting for his life in the hospital. Motherfucker may never see again. Fuck, this was bad. But there was only one possible way out of it. JL told Will he'd have to put aside his pride, face the music. He had to make it right. And it had all gone wrong so fast. When Will Smith walked into the studios of WDAS-FM, Philly's R&B and classic soul station, it was all love. At this time in 1989, the title for sultriest female in Philadelphia hands down belonged to Mimi Brown. The tone of her on-air voice was seductive, and she was just as easy to look at as she was to listen to. Plus, she was gonna give Will and his new record some love. Will and Jeff were underbooked on the promotional circuit, anticipating a critical drubbing for their rushed third album. Mimi Brown seemed to be the only media personality interested in connecting with Will and hyping the record in a positive light. Will wasn't alone with Mimi in the WDAS studio booth. Charlie Mack was Mimi's biggest fan. He wasn't going to miss the chance to be in the same room with his favorite radio vixen. But there was someone else, too. As Will kicked some freestyle verses into the mic in the studio booth, live on the air, he looked through the booth's glass at the small crowd of fans and other local artists gathered there to watch. And looking right back at him was Dana Goodman. Dana Goodman, the record exec who felt that he had been screwed over by Will and Jive Records, the one who showed up outside Will's house with a gun on the dash of his Audi 4000. He was right there. Probably heard Will live on air and decided to make a visit, perhaps a long overdue visit, perhaps to collect what he thought was owed to him. Some other dude was standing next to Dana. Dana whispered in the dude's ear as Will tried not to trip all over the flow of his freestyle. Will attempted to get Charlie's attention with a quick glance, but Charlie only had eyes for Mimi. Dana motioned to the door of the studio booth, and the other man walked forward, opened the door, and stepped inside. Will kept rhyming, all the while wondering how many more seconds would pass until he was a stone-cold goner. As Dana and the other man made their presence known, Charlie finally noticed. Will wrapped up his freestyle, the audience on the other side of the glass began to applaud. The guy with Dana had heard enough. In his mind, they were all cheering for the wrong person. Y'all need to thank Dana Goodman, he said. And the words jolted Will. He didn't expect to see Dana Goodman ever again, at least not like this. Charlie, in turn, told the other guy to cool it. Will was in his element. Step back and let him do his thing, the whole thing, here on Mimi's show right now. 
This was all about Will. It wasn't about anybody else. And the guy didn't agree. He repeated himself. Y'all need to thank Dana Goodman, he said. He put a hand up. He touched Charlie's chest. He pushed Charlie back. Wrong fucking move. Charlie sprang into action, right hand up fast and hard. Right hand swinging just like that and his fist ran smack into the dude's head. Dude's face exploded, the blood splattering all over the studio. He fell over into a rack of radio cassette tapes and hit the floor. Goodman ran. Mimi was ushered away by station security. Charlie grabbed Will. They had to leave now, out the back parking lot. But wait, shit. Dana Goodman was out there somewhere. What if he was waiting for them? Will and Charlie had no choice. Outside, they were relieved that Dana was nowhere to be found. But there was a security officer who stood blocking Will and Charlie's car from leaving. And then there were the cops. Two cars in total. Guns drawn. Cuffs out. Will Smith and Charlie Mack sent to jail. Out of the limelight and into the darkness. And in that darkness, Will balked at the nauseating plate of rice and beans he was tossed by a guard. Looked like a bed of maggots with stale cornbread and a carton of spoiled milk to wash it down. In that darkness, he learned the charges. Aggravated assault, criminal conspiracy, simple assault, and recklessly endangering another person. One knockout after the next. In that darkness, JL told him over the phone what he had to do. Pay the guy's medical bills. Pay those bills and that's one step toward forgiveness. That's one step toward getting those criminal charges dropped. Will agreed. He gave JL the go ahead. The guy that Charlie Mack assaulted was a record promoter. His left eye orbit, the socket, was fractured. He needed six stitches and he was nearly blinded by the assault. At first, he wasn't accepting Will Smith's hospital bill payoff penance. But once he realized it was better than any other option on the table, he accepted and he dropped the charges. Out from behind bars, Will Smith vowed to change his life for the better, and that meant leaving Philadelphia for good, breaking ties with the junior black mafia. That meant not saying no when Quincy Jones asked Will to audition on the spot at a mansion party in Los Angeles for a new TV show he was producing, and then saying yes to the role of a lifetime as the star of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the sitcom that made Will Smith a household name the gig that gave him access to a career in blockbuster films. Films like Bad Boys, Independence Day, Men in Black, Enemy of the State, and those were just from the 90s alone. He also got another shot at love. Jada Karim Pinkett was easy to be around, easy to open up to, no judgment, no malice. It was all love from the start. Love that created two of Will's three children. Love that even withstood their separation when in 2015, Marriage meant new lovers on the side instead of leaving each other's side. When the so-called entanglements of their separation were put on blast five years later after they had reunited, Will Smith moved forward. He didn't flinch at his shared truth with his wife. But that truth was now the laughing stock of the public. It was a meme, the hot topic of nearly every daytime talk show. The sting was familiar. It was the same sting Will felt years ago back when his peers and critics called his rhymes corny, said that he was just some goofball parody, not an actual rapper. Did they not see the title of that record? Jeff was the DJ and he was the rapper, motherfucker. He felt the sting again when they said he wasn't a real actor, that despite his big dramatic turns in films like Ali and The Pursuit of Happiness, he was just some dumb blockbuster action star who needed to stay in his lane. And that sting never went away. 
That sting called attention to bullshit. Why did everyone love bullshit? The attention should be on the good shit. How he loved, how he lived, how he acted. By awards season in 2022, Will Smith wanted the attention to be on his performance as Richard Williams in King Richard, not on his marriage, and not on his wife. It happened at the moment that Will Smith felt like he was on top of the world. That old standoff with Dana Goodman from 33 years earlier came rushing back. Chris Rock might have been a lankier, toothier version of Dana Goodman, but the men were one and the same. Couple of shit talkers. There Chris stood, dressed in a dark blue velvet tuxedo, grinning from ear to ear. He had an award to hand out, but not before he got off a few jokes first. Will Smith was the talk of the night before anything happened. That Best Actor Oscar was his, so it was only natural if he was on Chris Rock's mind. But Chris wasn't joking about Will. Chris was joking about Will's wife, Jada, sitting next to him, showing off her bald head and the result of her alopecia. Jada, I love you, Chris said. G.I. Jane too, can't wait to see it, right? G.I. Jane? Demi Moore wasn't in the room. The reference was outdated. It was a cheap shot. Didn't matter. The audience roared. Will chuckled to mask his frustration from the cameras. Jada grimaced, rolling her eyes back into her skull and clasping her hands to contain her embarrassment. Will tried to hold it in. He'd been holding it in for too long, holding it in for years. No more. He stood from his seat. He made a quick and confident stride to the stage. It happened fast, it happened swift, and it happened hard. The audience at the Dolby Theater cheered, thinking that the slap was all in good humor, maybe even scripted, because Will Smith wouldn't dare to go off script, or so they thought. Chris Rock was knocked back by the force of Will's open hand. He adjusted himself to face the reality of what happened. Will Smith just slapped the shit out of me. More cheers, another round of laughter. But Will's next remark would be the most unexpected of the night. It would be even more memorable than the speech he delivered when, just a short time later, he accepted his award for best actor. Keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. The auditorium gasped. Will repeated the message once more for good measure. Keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. And that, as Chris Rock himself said, was the greatest night in the history of television. The statement Will Smith made after the shocking incident still reads more like a message to the world than just to Chris Rock. It was a nod to Will's past to the kid who cracked Will on his head back at Overbrook High, to the IRS for going deep in his pockets, to Dana Goodman and the record promoter for fucking with him, Daddy-O for assaulting Mom-Mom, to all the pains that never left. Will wasn't able to come to Mom-Mom's defense, but he promised that Jada would never feel alone, and he would keep that promise if it meant doing what he had to do in order to protect what he loved. He would be a man, her man, but part of being a man is being able to keep your emotions in check. Part of being a man is not losing control. Part of being a man is being able to pull some punches, even when life keeps throwing them your way. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands.
Friends was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.